I was trying to think of what best captured the image of what Jude was trying to do in these few verses. Uh, The illustration I came up with was uh, this image of spiritual forensics. If you know anything about uh, the world of forensics, it's where you take DNA and fingerprints and other such material markers, and you use them to help you identify and catch criminals. To make use of these tools, scientists compare the evidence at a scene against the DNA or fingerprints of a suspect, uh, thereby making an arrest if it matches up or uh, gives more information about what went down at a crime scene. Well, in our text this morning, Jude gives us a set of spiritual fingerprints. Fingerprints that not only point to an individual, uh, a physical criminal, but a spiritual criminal, in fact, a whole host of spiritual criminals, false teachers who seek to distort the gospel and lead people away from the truth. By plainly stating in verses 8 through 10 the specific errors of false teachers, the false teachers in Jude's day, the Holy Spirit prepares us to identify, withstand, and defend against the false teachers of our own day. I think there's three different sets of fingerprints, if you will, running with that analogy that Jude gives us throughout our text this morning. And we're going to look at each of the three of these in turn as we walk through the text. The first is false teachers fundamentally reject the authority of God's word. Second, false teachers defile themselves with wicked deeds. And third, false teachers have an overinflated view of themselves. They're presumptuous and prideful. So uh, this morning, let's head to our text. I'm actually going to start reading in verse 3. I'm going to read all the way to verse 13 just to give us some context and to refresh your memories about what we talked about a few months ago when we were in Jude. And we're going to pray and dive in. So let's start back at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, And blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, 
wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to this text, would you please, Lord, strengthen us in the faith, protect us against falsehood, and cause us to recognize the significance of obedience and of holiness. Lord, please, we ask, would you draw our eyes off of the mundane this morning and off of our lives and off of our struggles and trials right now. Lord, draw our eyes to behold you and your gloriousness and your might. Create in our hearts a pure desire to worship you by the reading of your word and by hearing the word preached. Father, be glorified in the midst of your people gathered to worship you this morning. Thank you for the saints that are here. Would you please bless them and encourage them uh, with this text this morning. We love you, Father, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a few months since we've been in Jude, so permit me to just give a quick recap of what we've talked about in the epistle thus far. Starting back in verse 3, Jude plainly states his purpose in writing this letter. He says, though I wanted to write about our common salvation, I really had to instead write to you, appealing to you to fight for the faith or to contend for the faith. Why? Well, because there were in the church, according to verse 4, certain men who crept in unnoticed. It's a problem. They were distorting the faith, and they were leading others astray. Jude says of these certain men that they were ungodly. They perverted the grace of God into a license to sin. That means that they thought that because God was gracious and saved by grace, works really were less important. They said, we can continue to sin so that grace may abound. And lastly, these certain men denied the lordship of Jesus. They denied that he was their master. These men were dangerous. Dangerous. They were not Christians, but were rather like landmines in the church, distorting the gospel and leading some astray. John MacArthur used the example uh, of these men being spiritual terrorists, who they sneak in unnoticed into a society. They strap bombs of false teachings to their chest and they run into the midst of God's people to distort the truth and to harm the church. That was the situation that Jude is dealing with and his task in this epistle is to reveal the terrorist cells within the churches, to make it clear who these men were, what they looked like, and how to be on defense against them. So this wasn't a letter of general encouragement, like so many epistles are in the New Testament. No, this was a letter contending for the faith. It was a letter fighting for the purity of the church. Verses 5 through 7 then continue to kick things off with an overwhelming salvo of judgment texts. It's pretty intense, those three examples that he gives there. His point is that as God's wrath in Old Testament histories, God's wrath burned hot against ungodliness and pride and sexual immorality. So too would his wrath now consume these men who are doing the very same things. He gives a triplet of examples to kind of communicate what these these false teachers were like. He points to wayward Israel who refused to enter the promised land because they were afraid and they perished in the wilderness as a result. He points to angels who left their proper positions of authority and committed acts of sexual immorality. Uh, They are kept in chains of gloomy darkness, awaiting the day of judgment. And thirdly, he pointed to Sodom and Gomorrah, 
were sexually immoral, and serve as a type of the eternal fire to come in God's judgment on evil. The point that he's making so far uh, up through verse 7 is that as God has acted like before, so will he act like again. As he has been filled with wrath against ungodliness, so now will he be filled with wrath against ungodliness in the form of these false teachers. In verse 8, in our text this morning, Jude begins to show the moral fingerprints of these men, that they must be readily identified and rebuked. He's going to tell us who they are. So let's, let's take a look at verse 8 and reread that. Jude writes, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Notice the very beginning of this verse begins with a strong tie to the prior verses. He says, in like manner, these people also. These people are like the examples he just listed. They're like rebellious Israel. They're like debased angels. And they're like lust-filled Sodom. And then he says that they are dreamers. That they rely on their dreams. And on the basis of their dreams, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. I said earlier that there were kind of three, three sets of fingerprints that Jude, Jude gives us here, three major categories that he draws out. The first is a fundamental rejection of God's word. And I think right here, the beginning of this verse, is where we run into that first category. Because if you look at what Jude is saying, he's saying that essentially because of their dreams, on the basis of their dreams... They reject authority, defile the flesh, so on and so forth. So they're relying on something that's informing how they act. It's informing their thinking. And notice what they are not reliant on right here. Not on scripture. Not on God's word. They're reliant on dreams. The basis and grounds of their wicked actions were their dreams. Now, that's a little odd at first. Dreams, what? It's kind of a weird uh, thing to state. Why would they base their actions off dreams. Well, the term for dream used here is used elsewhere in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Acts, I'm thinking, to speak of dreams that are revelatory. That is, revelation from God that is expressed in the form of dreams. In other words, I don't think Jude is saying they appealed to you know, some, some idea they had when they were sleeping. I think that Jude is saying they claimed to act in accordance with divine revelation having dreams and visions that supported their actions and their doctrines. Now, honestly, in one sense, I think in our context in our church, we hear about dreams and visions and whatnot, and we're like, oh, yeah, we kind of scoff at that. We've got to understand dreams are incredibly, I'm sorry, not just dreams, revelation, a claim to revelation from God is incredibly powerful. That's a very powerful claim. It's alluring. It's authoritative. If someone comes and says, God spoke to me, told me X, Y, and Z, just instinctively, you're like, well, I wonder what they think he said. You know, you, you, you kind of perk up. In Jude's day, where there were many people, presumably, who had the New Testament gift of prophecy, all the more reason for people to perk up their ears and pay attention. It's authoritative. It's alluring. But brothers and sisters... I think it's in one sense comical because when we look at all of church history, what we find is that the schemes of Satan are shockingly unoriginal. History does not record one instance of men who claim to have dreams and visions and thus came up with uh, 
false doctrines and false practices. History is rife with accounts of men and women who claimed divine encounters and thus started faith traditions on the basis of those very dreams and visions. Such experiences become for many people the basis for rejecting the historic Christian faith. In other words, people say, because of this dream, I'm rejecting what the church has held for thousands of years. It becomes the ground for overt sinfulness, often sexual in nature. And third, it results in schism, which pulls people away from the truth. Throughout history, we have a time and time and time again examples of false teachers who do this, all three of these things. And Jude's day was not unique in that. If we look at some of these, I mean, from, uh, th- think of Muhammad and Islam, or, or Ellen G. White and Seventh-day Adventism, or, quite relevant for our context, Joseph Smith and Mormonism. There are lots and lots of times where this exact event has happened. I mean, if you think about it, the entire Mormon church is really, at its root, founded on a claim of receiving revelation of visions and dreams from the Lord. That's the claim. Claims to divine revelation are convincing lies for many people. They are convincing. It's not hard if you were to claim that you had a divine revelation. It would not be hard for you to gain quite a following. Now, honestly, I don't know whether or not these men actually had supernatural dreams. I'm not just talking about in Jude's day. I'm talking about throughout history. I don't know. I don't know if it was their imaginations. I don't know if they made it up or if they had real dreams that they thought were supernatural and from God. Honestly, it doesn't quite matter. Because the devil can incorporate the imaginations of men just as easily as he can make use of all of his other tools. Jude calls them out, says these men, they're the the dreamers. They're the spiritual terrorists who carry bombs of false teaching into the church. And by practicing the things that their dreams told them to practice, these men rejected the authority of God's word. So I want to consider the words of scripture because for us, It's important for us to recognize how can we tell whether or not someone's vision or dream is legitimate? How would the people in Jude's day have known whether or not a dreamer was legitimate or not? Deuteronomy 13 gives a very helpful test for this exact situation. Permit me to read a section for Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So we've been given a a rubric, a standard by which to evaluate a dreamer. God has revealed himself plainly and straightforwardly. We know him based off what he says in his word, and we know what he hates. In this case, he hates idolatry. It's made abundantly clear throughout the Old Testament. He hates idolatry. And so if a dreamer shows up and says, let me point you towards another God, an idol. Let me teach you things contrary to what you've already been taught. Then it does not matter. Notice what Deuteronomy 13 said. It does not matter if that man has a real sign or wonder that comes to pass. That's profound and very significant. What that's saying is, even if there are supernatural marks to this dreamer, even if there really was a vision and there really was a dream, 
There really were miracles. That doesn't make something inherently true. It could still be false. That means that we must know how to confront the teachings of those who have claimed to have visions and dreams. If we don't know what God has said, if we're unaware that he hates idolatry, how can we be prepared for the man who comes, says, I had a dream from the Lord, go worship an idol. It is only by the study of what God has said that we can learn to identify what God has not said. The Apostle John talks about a very similar thing in 1 John chapter 4. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just because you encounter a spirit, that doesn't make the spirit from God. 1 John goes on to say, Whoever knows God listens to us. By this, he means the apostles. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So how can we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error? According to John, by looking at what accords with the apostolic teaching preserved in Holy Scripture. That's how. If a teaching doesn't accord with Scripture, then we must reject it. For the sake of our own souls, for the sake of the purity of the church, we must not be led astray by false prophets. When I was in the latter years of high school, my early years in college, uh, I became a big fan of a number of teachers that were a part of something called the New Apostolic Reformation. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, we colloquially refer to that as the hyper-charismatic movement. I was very much enamored with this whole movement um, late high school. And on several occasions, I was taught by people how to hear what God wanted for me to do in my life. I remember on one occasion, I was with a guy, many years my senior. We were at a Taco Bell. We had finished off some double-decker tacos. And um, he pulled out the napkin that was uh, on the tray, and he slid it in front of me, and he said, here's what I want you to do. I'm going I'm to teach you how to hear from God. I want you to close your eyes, and whatever comes to your mind, whether you see a picture of a word in your mind's eye, or you think you, you hear a word or something like that, just say it, and I'll write it down, and then we'll see what God is saying to you. So that's what we did. A couple minutes, closed my eyes and wrote down words onto this napkin. And when we opened our eyes, we linked together this uh, pretty incredible narrative about what my life was supposed to look like and what I was supposed to do in life. And it was honestly very compelling to me. It was very compelling. It was very significant at the time. It felt like this was what God wanted for me to do. And, and I was very excited. I was like, this is, this is the secrets to the universe right here. All I have to do is have a napkin in front of me and close my eyes, and I'm good to go. All I need to do is go to Taco Bell. And that's really, that's really the solution to all life's issues. But looking back, my instructions were not only hilariously constructed from random words, um, they were totally false. The so-called prophecies that I were given never came true. And additionally, I was encouraged to do things that were blatantly contrary to Scripture. Overtly so. When I look back, I was like, what? how did my mind not flag that as a problem? But it didn't. The Lord had mercy on me. and He kind of led me out of that. And he kept me from far more grievous errors. But it was an important lesson for me. Because I'm not to receive direction like that. I've been given everything that God expects of me. I've been told what he requires of me and how I can do what God desires 
right here. Right here. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Well-known verses, very, very helpful for me. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for a whole host of things. Verse 17, though, is often left off of this verse, and that's a travesty, because it ends with, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Do you want to be equipped for every good work that God expects for you to do? Do you want to be complete, knowing what he requires and demands and expects of you? Then you don't need to go to Taco Bell. You don't need to have a dream or a vision. What you need is the inspired, inerrant word of God to lead you and guide you in life. It's not flashy, but man, it's such a gift. It's so precious to us as Christians. By the providential hand of the Lord, I was reading through Jeremiah chapter 23 this week in my uh, daily Bible reading. I want to draw your attention to a little bit of that text uh, for a moment because I think it's actually quite relevant for this discussion. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 16 through 17. This is what's written. God is speaking. He says, do not listen to the words of prophets of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no disaster shall come upon you. <laughs> That's an incredible last uh, verse there. They say to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to those who follow their own hearts stubbornly, no disaster shall come upon you. Now, if you know anything about the days of the prophets, uh, Israel didn't exactly have their act together, as it were. Um, things were not good. And false prophets spoke very ignorantly. They spoke visions of their own minds, says Jeremiah, and filled Israel with vain hopes. They assured the people essentially this, it will be well with you. It shall go well with the nation. You shall have peace. That's the false prophecies that these false prophets gave in Israel's history. It wasn't this dramatic, blown out of the water, crazy system. All they said is, God is not upset with you. That was the devastating lie that destroyed Israel that people believed in. It seems to be a hallmark that false teachers preach a message of baseless peace. That is peace on the, based off nothing. There was no peace for Israel. The true prophets of the Lord preached a message of looming destruction and judgment. The Lord's bow was taut. It was ready to strike. In Jude's day, the false teachers said much the same things. They said, defile the flesh and no judgment will come upon you. Their error was perverting the grace of God into sensuality. That's what Jude said in verse 4. God is gracious and loving. He sent his son to die on your behalf. He's not going to judge you in anger. Brothers and sisters, these are the exact words of the false teachers of our own day and our own age. They say things like, God is love and he's not angry with you. He's not wrathful. They say Jesus accepted people as they were and so he accepts you as you are. They say he helps you and is with you no matter what. Essentially, false prophets in our day imply this. You can continue in your life, in your lifestyle, with your works and your deeds, and your pride and your sexual deviancy. You can feed the lust of your heart. It's okay. You were made that way. In fact, you don't even have to believe God. 
believe in God. You know, you, you could think he doesn't exist, but his love is bigger than that. And he loves you. Have you ever heard someone teach that uh, you can come to Christ with no strings attached? Now, I, I, there's a sense in which someone says this in a way that's true. We don't get our lives into order before we come to Christ, okay? He fixes us. But the idea that there's no strings attached to coming to Christ is an utter, absolute lie. They say you don't need change in your life. Just sprinkle on a little bit of the Lord Jesus onto what you're already doing. Live your life. Take the Jesus shaker. Pour it on. Show up at church. You're good to know. You're good to go. That's false. That's not true. And you will not find that teaching in the Bible. True salvation, true faith must, it necessarily must be accompanied by repentance, by a rejection of your previous life. You must repent of your sins, turning from them, rejecting them, and hating them as the very thing that got you into the mess you're being saved from. You cannot sprinkle a little Jesus on top. You either throw the whole dish away and get a new dish, or you don't have him at all. Again, that doesn't mean you're perfect when you come to the foot of the cross, but it does mean that when you come to the foot of the cross, you are different. Forever you're different. You never look the same. You've changed. How can you who died to sin continue to live in it? Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. False teachers preach this message, message of peace and love, and in doing so, they miss the gospel. Guys, the gospel is not God doesn't care about what you do as long as you believe. That's not the gospel. The gospel is your sin has so devastated your standing before an almighty, holy God that you are in imminent and eternal peril. At any moment, the Lord may take your life. This very day, he may take your life. And what will you have to show for all the deeds that you've brought about in the course of your life? Not much, but damnation for you. But that doesn't mean you can't have peace with God. You can have peace with God. That's the gospel. The gospel message is there is a way to have peace, peace. There is a way to have peace with God, but it's not by this cheap idea of I prayed a prayer when I was four and I can do whatever I want the rest of my life. You can be restored to a right standing before him by turning, denying, and rejecting your life and clinging only to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. For you sitting in these seats, know that the false prophets who say that everyone has peace with God, they speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. That's what Jeremiah 23 says. They've twisted God's grace into something grotesque. Do not listen to the false teachers of liberal American Christianity. Do not listen to the false teachers of the LDS church or any other church that claims the same kinds of things, that it is on the basis of works and ordinances and laws that we're made right with God. No. Believe in what God has revealed in his word. I heard uh, Pastor Allen one time say, um, when, you, when, you, when he realized the gospel, uh, he realized that the, Christian, the call to the Christian is very simple. It's very simple. Uh, but it costs everything. It costs your entire life. It's very costly. You don't keep going on like you always have been. 
So the Bible says, to the one who does not work but believes in the God who justifies ungodly sinners like you and I, that is the man who has peace with God through the blood of the Lord Jesus on the cross. So turn. If you're not a Christian, leave your life behind. Repent. Those things bring death. Jesus came to the disciples and said, come follow me. Leave your lives and come follow me. So the Lord bid you also come. Come follow him. Leave your lives behind. If you drink deeply and freely from the living water that leads to eternal life, you will certainly be saved. Let's go back to, uh, real quick, before we move on, a couple more verses from Jeremiah 23. I think it's really helpful. Um, This is in verses 25 through 32 of that chapter. Here's what Jeremiah records. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own hearts, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. That's such a tremendous verse. Let him who speaks my word speak it faithfully. Go on, speak your dreams, O dreamer. Speak your visions. Declare them. But the man who has the word of God, let him speak as well. We'll see which one carries with it the power of God. Brothers and sisters, the mark of a Christian is one who relies on the authority of the word of God. The man who lives and breathes and speaks scripture. He doesn't traffic in false dreams or defilements. No, no. He knows the word of the Lord. By looking at the error of the false teachers, we are told what genuine Christians look like. We don't look like those who rely on dreams. We look like those who love the word. Brothers and sisters, may the spirit of God raise our hearts to a high and reverent esteem of scripture. No demonic message can do what scripture can do. Scripture is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces hearts. It is the tool of the Spirit used to quicken our souls and infuse life into our dead bones. When we do evangelism out on the streets, it's very significant to us that we don't use the philosophies of men, that we don't stand out there giving all these reasons to reject whatever faith tradition they hold to. No, all we say is, this is what God said. This is what he says. And for God's people, for the elect, God's word will have its proper effect. It will draw them, protect them, convince them, and correct them. I don't need the vain imaginations of man. I don't need men to speak their thoughts. I need scripture. We need scripture. Our churches these days don't need self-helpy kind of ideas that, that fill us for a week and then leave us empty the week following. No, we need scripture, saints. Scripture, untold tarnished and plain and straightforward. We need the word of God to heal and instruct our church. Woe to the man who exchanges scripture for the ideas and dreams and program of the day that change with every new graduating class from cutting edge seminaries. No, brothers and sisters, we are people of the book. So, I droned on a little bit there, but that's our first set of of fingerprints, (laughs) our first set of spiritual fingerprints that we can use to readily identify false teachers is a rejection of the authority of God's word. And it leads us right into the second set of fingerprints, which is defiling deeds. False teachers show themselves to be false by their lack of regard for obedience and holiness. 
continue, go back to Jude, if you uh, flip to Jeremiah, back in our text, we have that these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Several times throughout Jude, uh, Jude uses triplets to kind of prove his points. Um, He begins this triplet with defiling the flesh. These so-called dreams led them to make their flesh unclean. This certainly has some kind of sexual undertones to it. Uh, which has been established in the examples he gave before, the angels committed sexual immorality in Sodom and Gomorrah. Clearly, that was a problem, something that was readily um, identifiable. It is notable to me that if you have a man who creates a a religious group on the basis of a dream or a vision, it's just so common that you have some sort of sexual deviancy along with it. You see, time and time again, uh, sexual immorality follows these men who claim to have dreams and visions. They use their dreams as an excuse to get away with things that are very straightforwardly wrong. In addition, these people reject authority. Now, authority in this verse is singular. It's not authorities, it's authority. And that leads me to believe that this is kind of a repeat of what Jude said back in verse 4, where he said, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They may with their lips accept Jesus, with their deeds, they deny him as master and Lord. This is exactly what it means to pervert the grace of God. You, you can't take a part of Jesus. You can't take him as savior and not take him as master or as Lord. If you take him as savior, you're also taking him as your Lord. Uh, you, don't, you, you can't cut Jesus in half. He's both prophet, priest, and king. You're not going to get prophet and priest without king. In addition to presumptuous sins, these men think too highly of themselves. This is our third set of fingerprints. They imagine that they're greater than they really are. They think too highly of what they're like. Their pride indicts them. It's another fingerprint that we may use to unmask them. We get that from the last statement of this triplet that then Jude parses out in the next two verses when he says they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, if you read that and have no idea what it means, that's okay. Neither did I. Uh, This is is easily the most perplexing and difficult one on this list. There's really two questions that we have to address in order to understand what Jude means. Who are the glorious ones? What does it mean to blaspheme them? First, glorious ones. Well, I actually think that they're angels. I think the people are blaspheming angels. And here are two reasons why. Number one, the example given to illustrate this point in verse 9 is Michael arguing with Satan, both angelic beings. Second, the parallel text from this is in 2 Peter chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, Peter writes, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. It's the same term used there. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So they don't blaspheme the glorious ones, and the glorious ones, the angels, don't pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So those two points convince me that because of so-called dreams and visions, false teachers not only reject the Lordship of Christ, they blaspheme angels. So what does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean to blaspheme angels? Well, the word blaspheme is used all over the New Testament, and it's usually translated as slander or revile. When we think of blasphemy, we think of, um, you know, speaking against the nature of God. But the term is just used as some kind of slanderous verbal sentiment. So it's used all over the place. If, If you have the word revile translated at any point in the Bible, it's probably the word for blaspheme. So these men were reviling or disrespecting or slandering heavenly beings. So what does that mean? Well, this is where we kind of hit a brick wall. I don't know what that means exactly. There's not great consensus on what it was that these false teachers were doing. 
Some people think they were presumptuously reviling demons. They were speaking strong judgment about them, assuming themselves to have a kind of spiritual authority that they didn't. Other people say, uh, well, uh, we know that the angels were involved in the placing of the law at Mount Sinai. Uh, we, we know from Galatians, Acts, and Hebrews that God used angels to confer uh, the Mosaic law. Perhaps the reviling was because they, they rejected any kind of law or rule over them. And so by evil actions, it was kind of like reviling the, the angels who were guardians of God's word. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. We don't know for sure. Uh, but technically, that's not important for understanding what Jude's point is. Before we continue, I, I want to go to verse 9. Because I think the illustration that he uses there will help us understand a little bit more of what he's talking about at the end of verse 8. Verse 9 says this, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Okay, so before addressing anything else about this text, let's address the elephant here. This story does not appear in the Bible. We don't find it in any biblical text. Deuteronomy 34 is where we have the record of Moses' death, but it says nothing about Satan or Michael. This is what Deuteronomy 34 says. It says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. All Deuteronomy 34 tells us is that God buried Moses. Yet evidently, there's a dispute about his body. Even though we don't have that uh, story preserved anywhere else in Scripture, it's true because it appears here in the inspired text of Jude. So the question is, when we look at this story, Michael and Satan are arguing about the body of Moses. What are they arguing about? It's another place where we just have to admit we don't know for sure um, you guys have the same Bible I do. You know as much as I do about uh, what the Bible says they disputed over. Some people think that Satan was trying to uh, allow the people of Israel to know where Moses was buried because it was likely they would fall into idolatry by over-honoring his body, so he wanted to publicly make it known. Other people say that, well, maybe it's because Moses murdered an Egyptian, and so Satan was saying that Moses didn't deserve an honorable burial. Uh, we just don't know exactly what they were talking about. But again, that doesn't really affect the overall meaning of what Jude is saying here. Now, if this story isn't in the Bible. Where's it from? Uh, well, this story is actually said to have come from a book called The Assumption of Moses. Early church documents make reference to this story and The Assumption of Moses. Um, and so that's why we think it probably came from that document. But today there are no existing manuscripts of the Assumption of Moses. And so we just don't know what it says. Uh, we don't know what stories it had in it. And I want to address this for a moment because I've come across people who are very bothered by the Bible making reference to another book that we don't have and that's not in our canon. Uh, does this mean that the Assumption of Moses got left out of the Bible? It should have been included uh, and something went wrong? No, I don't think that we should have the assumption of Moses as one of the books in the Bible. I don't think it was left out, and I don't think we need to even be nervous about it for a couple of reasons. First, biblical authors quote or cite uninspired texts as true on numerous occasions throughout the Bible. We have reference to pagan poets and to the books of the wars of the Lord and all those things, that you, the books of the, the kings of, of Judah, or I don't know, you know, all those books that the Old Testament makes reference to. Just because the Bible references that book, it does not necessarily mean that that book is inspired. You can make reference to it without saying that it's inspired or inerrant. Um, and so 
we, we see Paul quoting pagan poets. He's not saying that the pagan poet is inspired. Everything he said is totally true. He's using that particular quote from a pagan poet to make his point. That particular truth uh, is true, but it doesn't mean that everything that poet said is true. In the same way here, even though something comes from the assumption of Moses, that doesn't necessitate that that book is inspired or even completely true. All it means is that this one story is true. Second point, the assumption of Moses should definitely not be in our Bibles. We know that certainly because it's not been preserved. Because it's not been preserved. God has not failed to give his people his word. God has not, did not inspire a text and say, oh no, the manuscripts got lost. They're not going to know everything I want them to know. God's not freaking out like that. What he intends for his church to have, his church has We don't need to worry about that. So since we don't have the copies, since we don't have the manuscripts, we don't even need to worry about it. God has not failed to give us his word. It was never meant to be part of the canon. And additionally, if the assumption of Moses was meant to be canonical, the church historically would have long recognized it as such. And there's no such recognition. So it wasn't preserved, wasn't accepted by the church, and thus is not a lost book from our canon. We don't need to be worried about that. Again, even though this is a bit of an odd text, um, ultimately, we don't shy away from odd text. God put it in this passage in Jude for a reason. It's inspired. It's profitable. Why did God inspire this particular verse? What, how is it helping us? Well, it uh, helps us see Jude's major point. Michael, the archangel, it's like one of the greatest among the ranks of angels, refused to pronounce a just judgment against Satan. The Why? Because Satan, though he was fallen, had a kind of intrinsic splendor due to his angelic nature. And it wasn't appropriate for Michael to speak that against him. It required someone much greater to judge Satan, namely God. And so if it was unfitting that the archangel Michael would speak in such a way against Satan, who seemingly deserved it, how much less fitting is it for a human to speak or revile against a heavenly being, an angel, Uh, That pride, that presumption is an overinflated view of self, and that is the mark of a false teacher, one who thinks of themselves far, far greater than they really are. And verse 10 makes this point explicit. Verse 10 says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. It does not take an extraordinarily humble man to acknowledge what he doesn't understand. We really don't know that much. If you ask me how my phone works, I'd be like, I don't just kind of... I don't know, magic. (laughs) It just works. Uh, If you ask me to explain how gravity functions, I would say I have absolutely no idea. And so I would be a fool if I stood before you and presumed to speak about the physics of gravity when I know nothing of that topic. Uh, How much less do we understand the splendors of the spiritual realm that we can't see? I can see my phone. I still don't know how it works. How can I even remotely understand the spiritual realm? It's so far beyond me. I think of Ezekiel, chapter 1. He sees these crazy creatures and, you know, different-sided heads and wheels within wheels with eyeballs everywhere. And Ezekiel is like grasping, be like, I was like a sea of crystal, kind of, but it was on fire, and there was also a rainbow, you know? And he's trying to describe it because it's so great, he can't even with language describe what he's witnessing, what he's seeing. And yet, despite their ignorance, despite the small state of humanity and our limitations, these fools speak very presumptuously. They revile glorious beings, and they talk about things that they don't know anything about. Have you ever talked with someone in a conversation where they, they kind of present themselves as an expert on a topic, and like two 
two questions in, you realize they know nothing about the topic they're pretending to be an expert in, and you're like, oh, you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, that's kind of like what these men were doing, uh, these false teachers are doing. They're void in understanding, they're prideful, and they're hasty to verbal reviling. The second part of verse 10 says, they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. What do animals want? They, they want procreation and food, and if they're a pet, attention. And in the same kind of way, these false teachers have base instincts that they seek to fulfill. They, they want sex. They want to fatten themselves, satisfy their desires, and promote themselves. And it's these very animal-like instincts, these beastly appetites, that will condemn them on the last day. And so there we have it. Those are three sets of fingerprints. They reject the Bible's authority. They pursue self-gratifying sins. They puff themselves up thinking that they're greater than they really are. So two points of application that are pretty straightforward. First, and most basically, church, beware false prophets. Beware false prophets. This is how you can tell if they're false. By using the standard of scripture against them. They look like sheep. They look legit. They're going to look like they're the real deal. But when you look at the fingerprints that were given in Jude or other texts in the New Testament, do they stand against the test of God's word? If they don't, they're false prophets and ought to be rejected. So be on your guard, brothers and sisters, against false teaching. But secondly, and I think most immediately practical perhaps for us, by looking at false teachers, we're shown what genuine Christians ought to look like. We should do the opposite of what these false teachers are doing. So if false teachers, false Christians hate the lordship of Christ, then we must love that Jesus is our master. We must delight in him being our Lord. If false Christians reject the authority of scripture, then that's what we cling to, the authority of scripture. If false Christians defile the flesh with immoral acts, then we war against our flesh and we fight against our disobedience and we pursue maximal holiness. If false Christians think highly of themselves, then we as Christians pursue humility. We pursue meekness. We look at others as more significant than ourselves. We don't do things to prop us up. We do things to prop others up. We lose so that they win. 1 Peter 2, 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And lastly, if false teachers don't understand the gospel, then we as Christians must understand it and revel in it and glory in the truths of our salvation. We don't say we're at peace with God because he just doesn't care about sin. We say we're at peace with God because Jesus died in my place on that cross. That's why I have peace with God. Consider this, Satan stands as your accuser, as he stood over the body of Moses and contended for the body of Moses, whatever that means, you, in your natural state, are in the grave, dead because of your works and your deeds. And Satan stands over your body, seeking to accuse you of your sins and your deeds and your iniquities. And the problem is, we're relying in the grave and we're hearing Satan repeat a list of accusations we can't stand up and say, that's not true. We can't stand up and say, you're a liar. No. When we look into our hearts, what do we find? Darkness and anger and ugliness, vile proclivities. 
We don't do the things that we know that we should. We do the things we know that we shouldn't. And so when we're brought before the courtrooms of heaven and Satan is accusing, what can we say in our natural state? What can we say? Can we say that's not true? Absolutely not. No one in this room could look at Satan and say that's not true. It is true. When we hear Satan's words and accusations, we almost find ourselves nodding. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, no, that's true. I did that. That's a terrible fate. That's the fate of humanity apart from Christ. Satan has an accusation that sticks because we're sinners. But, it's a good good but, but, oh church, there is one who comes to your aid while you're in the grave. There is one who steps up to contend with Satan over your body. And it's not Michael. It's not the archangel. It's not the, the chief of the angels. No, it's someone greater. It's someone mightier. It's the commander of heaven's armies himself. The Lord Jesus stands above your grave and he fights for you and he contends for you. There's no merit that you have that causes him to do this. He doesn't do it because he realized there was something good in you. No, he fights for his people, for his body and for his church, though he has no reason to do it but his glory alone and his good pleasure. And interestingly enough, the battle is not this dramatic battle over our grave. No, how does the Lord Jesus win? He wins without a word by stepping into the grave himself. He crawls into the mud and he buries himself under the weight of sin that wasn't his. Your sin buried him. And Satan stands accusing him of sins that weren't his. And he died on the cross for the sins of his people. But because Satan has no claim over his works, the grave was robbed of its power, it was plundered, and he burst forth out of that ground in glory. Up from the grave he arose. He plundered the grave. He brought us with him as he came out. He brought out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness so that now, We're with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. The prowling lion's teeth are shattered. His claws are gone. His head is crushed. And his accusations of you, O Christian, are now baseless. Baseless. For you were buried with Christ. You died with him. And your sins have been made white as snow. And you've been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Revelation tells us this. It's a great text. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Brothers and sisters, in Christ we have victory. Victory. The hymn, A Mighty Fortress, written by Martin Luther, says this line, this paragraph. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. Martin Luther told us that this word is liar. That's the little word that shall cause Satan to fall. Because all his accusations and all his disputes and all his attempts to claim our souls are now no more than lies, because we have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. May we be reminded of the gospel this morning. And in the midst of a world filled with false teachers, may we cling to the truth of what God has revealed in his word about how we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we request your aid this morning. We need your help in a whole manner of different things, God. Firstly, would you protect us and our church and our children from the deceitful lies of false teachers? Would you expose the false teachers of our day by their lies, by their hypocrisies, by their rejection of your word, by their love for sin? Would you unmask them, Lord? Give us peace. Lord, please, please rescue a whole host of people out from under the clenches of these false teachers. Lord, also, would you help us as Christians learn to live rightly as Christians ought to? Father, cause us to value your word, to see it as more precious than gold, more valuable than all the treasures of this world. Lord, cause us to found our lives upon it. Point us to it, Father, by your spirit. Give us an insatiable hunger to study and meditate on your word day and night. Lord, also keep us from sin, from all that that defiles the hands, from everything that is wrong and and wicked and vile in your sight. Lord, please cause us to grow in holiness by the power of your spirit for the sake of your great name. And lastly, Lord, would you grant us humility, Grant us humility in life, Lord. Help us to not think more of ourselves than we ought to. Help us to be lowly in spirit, to imitate your son who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, please bless your people this morning with endurance in the faith, with encouragement, and with conviction. We love you and ask these things in Christ's name, amen.